it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Friday, October 20th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Deanna Snyder, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Judith Linden. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowa-reading-iowa-radio-reading-dot.org. You know what that is. <laughs> and then we have announcements. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe, Gazette, and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5 o'clock, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear City View. 8.30, it's Polk County Senior. 9 p.m., tune in to Brain Trust with readings from Wired and other tech magazines. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And by that time, you're asleep. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Seven-day forecast. Today, high of 73 and a low of 50. Warmer today with sunshine, winds, west, southwest, 6 to 12. Clear tonight. Tomorrow, Saturday, 65 degrees for a high and a low of 40. And Sunday, high of 63 and 50 as a low. And here are the headlines from the main section of the paper. The spiritual war of American politics. Prayer politics increasingly blur together on the caucus campaign trail. And Starbucks and the union file dueling lawsuits. And Miller Meeks says she's got death threats after voting against Jordan in the House Speaker battle. And now with the first story, here is Judith. Thank you, Tiana. Starbucks and union file dueling lawsuits. Pro-Palestinian social media post draws fire. This story released by the Associated Press by Deanne Durbin. Starbucks and the union organizing its workers sued each other Wednesday in a standoff sparked by a social media post over the Israel-Hamas war. Starbucks sued Workers United in federal court in Iowa Wednesday, saying a pro-Palestinian social media post from a union account early in the Israel-Hamas war angered hundreds of customers and damaged its reputation. Starbucks is suing for trademark infringement, demanding that Workers United stop using the name Starbucks Workers United for the group that is organizing the coffee company's workers. Starbucks also wants the group to stop using a circular green logo that resembles Starbucks' logo. 
Workers United responded with its own filing, asking a federal court in Pennsylvania to rule that it can continue to use Starbucks' name and a similar logo. Workers United also said Starbucks defamed the union by implying that it supports terrorism and violence. On October 9, two days after the Hamas militants rampaged across communities in southern Israel, Starbucks Workers United posted Solidarity with Palestine on X, formerly known as Twitter. Workers United, a Philadelphia-based affiliate of the Service Employees International Union, said in its lawsuit that workers put up the tweet without authorization of union leaders. The post was up for about 40 minutes before it was deleted. But posts and retweets from local Starbucks Workers United branches supporting Palestinians and condemning Israel were still visible on X Wednesday. Seattle-based Starbucks filed its lawsuit in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa, noting that Iowa City Starbucks Workers United was among those posting pro-Palestinian messages. In a letter sent to Workers United on October 13, Starbucks demanded that the union stop using its name and similar logo. In its response, Workers United said Starbucks Workers United's page on X clearly identifies it as a union. Starbucks is seeking to exploit the ongoing tragedy in the Middle East to bolster the company's anti-union campaign, Workers United President Lynn Fox wrote in a letter to Starbucks. In its lawsuit, Workers United noted that unions often use the company name of the workers they represent, including the Amazon Labor Union and the National Football League Players Association. Starbucks said it received more than 1,000 complaints about the union's post. The Seattle-based coffee giant said workers had to face hostile customers and receive threatening phone calls. Vandals spray-painted Stars of David and a swastika on the windows of a Rhode Island store. Some lawmakers, including Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida, called for boycotts of Starbucks. Florida State Representative Randy Fine, a Republican, tweeted on October 11, If you go to Starbucks, you are supporting killing Jews. Starbucks official statements on the war have expressed sympathy for innocent victims in both Israel and Gaza. Starbucks unequivocally condemns acts of hate, terrorism, and violence. Starbucks Executive Vice President Sarah Kelly wrote in a letter to employees last week. Workers United has not issued its own statement, but its parent, the SEIU, said Tuesday that it has many members with family on both sides of the conflict and believes, quote, all Israelis and Palestinians deserve safety, freedom from violence, and the opportunity to thrive. Starbucks Workers United has been operating under that name since August 2021, a few months before it unionized its first Starbucks store in Buffalo, New York. Since then, at least 366 U.S. Starbucks have voted to unionize. The campaign helped kick off a wave of labor protests by Amazon workers, Hollywood writers, and actors and auto workers. But Starbucks does not support unionization and has not yet reached a labor agreement at any of its unionized stores. The process has been contentious, with workers organizing multiple strikes. 
Federal district judges and administrative judges with the National Labor Relations Board have issued 38 decisions finding unfair labor practices by Starbucks, the NLRB said, including delaying negotiations and withholding benefits from unionized workers. Thank you, Judith. All right, the spiritual war of American politics, prayer politics increasingly blur together on caucus campaign trail. This is from Galen Bacarrier of Des Moines Register. Iowa State Representative Brad Sherman took the stage at a Cedar Rapids auditorium as supporters of Donald Trump continued to file in, buzzing as they waited the arrival for the former president. Sherman began the afternoon's program on October 7th with a prayer. Williamsburg Republican, he said, who is also a pastor at Solid Rock Church in Coralville, said, This is not a time for politics as usual, not a time for religion as usual, not a time for prayers as usual. He prayed for Israel, which had been attacked by Hamas a day earlier, and said, We are at war in this nation as well, a spiritual war in which the Republican front-runner for president is on the front lines. They've shot their lying arrows at him, Lord, without cause, Sherman said of Trump. His family and all those who seek good have come, become targets. Lord, injustice is hanging over this nation like a dark storm. Prayers and invocations like Sherman's are not unusual on the presidential campaign trail in Iowa, where Republican politicking inter intertwines itself with the Christian evangelical leanings shared by many potential caucus goers. Some devotions are directed at candidates, calling on God to release your strategic planning upon President Trump as a prayer in Ottumwa, declared or asking for attendees to hear Vivek Ramaswamy's heart, as Kimberly Chapman did at an event for the candidate in West Des Moines. A few take aim at political opponents. A prayer to kick off a Tim Scott event in August asked the attenders to realize that those on the left hate you, hate your word, in many cases, hate your country. The prayers, often accompanied by the Pledge of Allegiance and the National Anthem, provide a glimpse into how religious leaders and attendees channel their frustrations with President Joe Biden, their fervor for a candidate or their policy priorities through their faith at a time when division and unease increasingly define American politics. I think there's a high anxiety within people of faith, and it seems to be increased, said Bob Vanderplatz, CEO of the conservative Christian advocacy group, The Family Leader. But I would say that it's kind of a broader reflection on the culture as a whole, he said. So among Iowa evangelicals, spiritual war manifests itself in the race for president. Sherman, who has endorsed Trump, believes both religion and politics have drifted far away from what we were originally. Moving toward an electoral process fully imbued in faith, he says, is necessary to fight the spiritual war that he spoke of on stage in Cedar Rapids. Few people seem to think about the fact that if demons and demonic spirits exist, then that means angels exist as well, he told the Register in an interview. They are doing battle in the spirit. The outcomes of those battles, he says, often have a big effect on what's happening in the natural world, including the results of the Iowa caucuses. War in Ukraine, and now between Israel and Hamas in the Middle East, has lent a new urgency to those invocations. At an event for Ron DeSantis on October 8th, the Reverend Jeremy Higgins of Calvary Community Church, 
who said he had visited Israel 17 times, led a prayer in support of the country's military and civilians. Hagen said, Your word tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, so, Lord, we do that, but also the nation of Israel as a whole. And we also want to lift up the men and women in Gaza, who aren't a part of these terrorist organizations, and there are so many who live there who love you, Lord God, and have nothing to do with this. That uncertainty abroad, combined with the critical primary cycle for the future of the Republican Party and a large chunk of religious voters in Iowa, has prompted some to demand even more direct involvement in the caucus process from parishes and faith leaders. Lynn County Republican Chair Bernie Hayes told the Register, I would be really, really glad, and I think some of the candidates, to really encourage uh, more involvement by the faith community. I feel that at least in circles that I run in, it's lackadaisical. They run from the word political. Presidential hopefuls courting voters of faith viewed as instruments of God. In the eyes of many faith leaders, a crowd of presidential hopefuls is more than just politicians vying for support in the first in the nation caucus state. They are instruments of faith, given assignments and callings to lead and serve the interests of God. Chapman, the Iowa lobbyist who serves as an advisor to Ramaswamy's campaign, said she had prayed and attended church alongside the entrepreneur and author. Though Ramaswamy is Hindu, she said he welcomes Christian prayer. Vivek, when you talk about being an instrument and God using you as an instrument, that reminds me and my Christian faith of God using us as a vessel, is how we would say that. She said that as she introduced the candidate in West Des Moines in early October. Other expressions of faith toward the candidates are more direct, even physical. At a Des Moines church in September, Representative John Dunwell, Republican from Newton, led a prayer in which a group gathered around DeSantis and laid hands on him. Many are looking for the next torchbearer for what former President Ronald Reagan called a spiritual revival, Vanderplatz said, centering faith in the world of conservative politics. For his part, Vanderplatz has expressed a desire for the GOP to move on from Trump. Candidates traveling through Iowa aim to position themselves as the best one to usher in that revival, attending church, shaking hands, courting endorsements from faith leaders, and emphasizing their opposition to abortion. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, whose stump speech invokes the feeling of a sermon for some Iowans, frequently quotes scripture on the trail. Former Vice President Mike Pence was asked by an Iowa woman in Greenfield whether he thinks God has personally called you to run for president. Without hesitation, he said, yes. Many of Pence's events end with him asking attendees to join him in prayer. Trump, who generally speaks little of his own faith, is preceded on stage at rallies by prayer and leans on his record and previous support among evangelical voters. But such prayers on the campaign trail shouldn't have a personal agenda, said Vanderplatz, and should be focused on seeing God's will be done by an elected leader. Ultimately, Vanderplatz said, what you're doing in the act of prayer itself is recognizing that God is God and you are not. He chuckled and said, that seems to be a problem we have today. Sherman believes that God does place assignments, callings on people, and that includes candidates for elected office. He's not concerned by those who don't believe in blending prayer and politics. He said, 
you can take you can just flip the side of that and say, well, I'm uncomfortable with people that don't believe in it, he said. Christianity never forces itself on anyone. I mean, you can't legislate a heart change inside of somebody. I will stand for people's right to be to believe whatever they want to believe. That's freedom. But I'm going to be muzzled from telling them what I believe. Judith. Miller Meek says she got death threats after voting against Jordan in House Speaker battle. This story by Stephen Gruber Miller. U.S. Representative Marionette Miller Meeks says she has received credible death threats after she pulled her support Wednesday from U.S. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio in the second round of balloting to choose the next Speaker of the House. Miller Meeks, a Republican who represents the 1st Congressional District in southeast Iowa, supported Jordan in the first round of votes on Tuesday, but cast her vote Wednesday for U.S. Representative Kay Granger of Texas, a Republican who chairs the Appropriations Committee. Miller Meeks said in a statement Wednesday night, Since my vote in support of Chairwoman Granger, I have received credible death threats and a barrage of threatening calls. The proper authorities have been notified, and my office is cooperating fully. In all, Jordan lost 22 Republican votes in his quest to become Speaker. He ended the second round of voting with 199 votes, while House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries of New York had 212. Candidates need 217 votes to win a majority. Jordan had the support of all four of Iowa's U.S. representatives during the first round of voting on Tuesday. Jordan's failed vote has left the House further mired in chaos, with no clear path to choosing a speaker. Jordan said Thursday he was not giving up his bid for speaker, but remains far short of the votes he needs. Miller Meeks said she voted for Jordan on Tuesday for the greater good of the House Republican Party. She went on to say in the statement, however, after one round of votes with my support, he was not able to secure enough votes for the Speaker nomination, and my initial concerns about threatening tactics of Jim Jordan supporters, including from members of Congress, increased despite assurances. She called those who tried to influence her decision bullies. One thing I cannot stomach or support is a bully, she said in her statement. Someone who threatens another with bodily harm or tries to suppress differing opinions undermines opportunity for unity and regard for freedom of speech. That's why I spoke out forcefully against censorship and suppression during the COVID-19 pandemic. I did not stand for bullies before I voted for Chairwoman Granger and when I voted for Speaker-designee Jordan, and I will not bend to bullies now, she said. Iowa's three other Republican U.S. representatives, Ashley Henson, Zach Nunn, and Randy Feenstra, maintained their support for Jordan in the second round of voting on Wednesday. Henson on Wednesday night called the threats totally unacceptable. This should be disavowed by all, she said on social media. I am disgusted that our politics have reached this low. Anyone resorting to threats against Miller Meeks or any other member of Congress should face the full force of the law. Jordan is a co-founding member of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus and an ally of former President Donald Trump. He did not vote to certify President Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election and is helping lead House Republicans' impeachment inquiry into Biden as chair of the Judiciary Committee. 
Miller Meek said her office has received calls from people urging her to support Jordan and from others who urged me to look for a conservative consensus candidate. She said in the statement, Our party needs a consensus candidate so we can get back to work forwarding appropriations, supporting Israel, and stopping the insane policies of the Biden administration. The House has been without a speaker for more than two weeks since a small group of Republicans successfully led an effort to oust former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy earlier this month. All four of Iowa's representatives had supported McCarthy. Jordan headlined a fundraiser fundraiser for Miller Meeks earlier this year. He condemned threats against his colleagues in a statement on social media Wednesday night. He, uh, Jordan said, No American should it cost another for their beliefs. We condemn all threats against our colleagues and it is imperative that we come together. Stop. It's abhorrent. Miller Meek's likely Democratic opponent, former state lawmaker Christina Bohannon, criticized Miller Meek's Tuesday for her first vote in favor of Jordan. And, and uh, she said, Representative Miller Meek's choice for speaker yet again shows her true values, Bohannon said, instead of working together to empower a moderate option that can get things done for Iowa, Miller Meeks prefers an extremist who is the author of the GOP's nationwide abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest, which she also herself supported. That, again, was from Bohannon. Miller Meeks has said she supports a 15-week national abortion ban with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Thank you, Judith. All right, moving over to Metro and Iowa section. North Dakota may hold December pipeline hearing. The state is to discuss restrictions imposed by counties. This is from Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Utility regulators in North Dakota may hold a hearing no sooner than December to consider oral arguments about county ordinances that would restrict the placement of Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed carbon capture pipeline in that state. That conflicts with the Ames-based company's request for the North Dakota Public Service Commission to overrule two county ordinances without soliciting new input from groups that oppose its project. The commission previously considered arguments about the ordinances in Burley and Emmons counties, but did not issue a ruling about them when it denied Summit a route permit in August. The state is crucial to Summit's proposed five-state pipeline system that would transport captured carbon dioxide emissions from ethanol plants. The company plans to sequester the greenhouse gas in North Dakota. When the commission denied the permit application, it said the ordinance issue was moot because it was denying the permit for other reasons. However, commissioners indicated that they had differing views about the restrictions. When the commission later agreed to reconsider the company's permit application with an altered route, Summit renewed its request to overrule the ordinances because they have the potential to significantly affect the pipeline route. The issue is purely one of law, and Summit's renewal motion does not make any new arguments, legal or otherwise, not already made or set forth in its original preemption motion, wrote Lawrence Bender, who is an attorney for Summit, in a filing last week. It went on, Accordingly, it is not proper for the Commission to allow the interveners another opportunity to respond in opposition. 
but the Commission unanimously decided this week to hold a hearing on the matter, as requested by interveners in the case, according to its recording of its Monday meeting. That decision was the potential to elongate the permit reconsideration process, in part because North Dakota's governor issued an executive order Tuesday to convene a special session of the state's legislature. The session is meant to address the North Dakota Supreme Court's recent decision to void parts of a budget bill which could affect government services. That session is expected to last a week, but there are now restrictions on reserving space for all of November in North Dakota State Capitol, where the Public Service Commission typically operates, said Victor Schock, who is Director of Public Utilities for the Commission. He expects the hearing to be held no sooner than December. The ordinances set minimum distances a pipeline can be placed from cities, houses, livestock facilities, and other sites. Summit has argued that the ordinances are so restrictive that its pipeline system could not pass through the counties, but opponents of Summit's route say that is an exaggeration. North Dakota law says a gas or liquid pipeline permit supersedes and preempts any local land use or zoning regulations, with an exception for road use agreements. Randy Christman, the chair of the commission, has called it a very clear law, but opponents of the pipeline route argue that other parts of the law and the intent of legislators who adopted them give counties a right to restrict the the pipelines. It's unclear when the commission will decide the issue. It's also unclear when it will schedule further evidentiary hearings for its reconsideration of Summit's permit request. Summit had requested a single hearing, but the commissioners have signaled more might be necessary. On Tuesday, the commission issued a formal request to Summit for more information about the changes to its route. The commissioners seek, among other information, first detailed maps of the pipeline route where it was changed, then what the company has done to address the concerns of landowners, and evidence that the pipeline does not pass through areas prone to landslides, and a thorough analysis of an alternate route around Bismarck where there has been resistance to the original route because of its potential to affect urban development, and a list of newly affected landowners and parcels, and finally, the percentage of land easements that have been obtained by the company in each county. Judith, back to you. It's a gift. New grocery store is a sign of hope in a food desert in Waterloo. This story by F. Amanda Tugade. Rodney Anderson still remembers a brief conversation he had with his daughter seven years ago has sparked an idea and changed the course of his life and his community. The two were in the car, with Anderson driving around Waterloo on a cool October day. Peering out the passenger window, Anderson said his daughter spotted several people walking and asked him if he knew where they were headed. Without hesitation, Anderson told her, Heard they were going to the Salvation Army on Franklin Street or to the nearest gas station for food. Then, passing by Franklin Street, Anderson said his daughter pointed to a bare lot where an old church once sat and said, that would be a nice spot for a grocery store. Anderson said he was struck by his daughter's observations. In just moments, she noticed the city's northeast side, particularly the Walnut neighborhood, was a food desert and proposed a solution— one that Anderson admits he took to heart and made his mission. 
Earlier this month, Anderson, with the help of a close friend and architect, Daniel Levi, and a group of funders, opened the door to all-in grocers in an area that has for years experienced neglect and been discounted as a site for new projects. Located at 221 Franklin Street, the 28,950-square-foot building brings a new meaning to the phrase, one-stop shop, as in all includes a grocery store, community center, laundromat, and restaurant called Grandma's Hands. Anderson, a developer by trade and community leader, said of the restaurant's name, I don't care who you are. You always thought your grandmother was the best cook. Food deserts, areas that have limited access to affordable and fresh food, are common in cities with high poverty rates like Waterloo and mostly impact communities of color. Grocery store owners likely opt out of opening their shops in food deserts because market research suggests that more affluent areas are profitable, according to the Humane League, a global nonprofit that aims to end the abuse of animals raised for food. That divestment allows communities in need to stay in need, Anderson said. Anderson, who is black and grew up in Waterloo, said residents living on the city's northeast side do have one supermarket, a high V. Uh, depending on the neighborhood you live in, he explained, that can be about a two to three mile drive, and that's if you have a car or access to public transit. But just over the bridge in West Waterloo, Anderson shared that others have many more options to choose from for groceries. Anderson, who continued to speak candidly about his hometown, said he sought to create change with all-in grocers and for his city, which once ranked as the worst city for black Americans. Naira Jordan of the American Family Insurance Institute for Corporate and Social Impact, one of All In's funders, said Anderson knew what was needed in his community. She described Anderson as a visionary and his store as part of an ecosystem of care. All In Grocers also provides a re-entry program for people transitioning back into the community after incarceration, as well as after-school activities through the 1619 Freedom School, which was launched by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and 1619 Project creator Nicole Hannah-Jones. All In Already has hired 64 full-time and part-time employees. Jordan, who helped establish and now leads America's Family Social Impact Work, said, This is truly solving a lot of issues. Anderson told the Des Moines Register that he and his team plan to construct and open the grocery store in 2021 or 2022, but issues spurred by the COVID-19 pandemic slowed the project down. But everything's about timing, right, he said. For Anderson, All In Grocers stands for something greater. It's life. It's hope. It's a gift. It's something that we had to fight so hard for. Thank you, Judith. All right, the squabble continues over manure management. This is from Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Amid continued opposition, a Clayton County livestock facility is again seeking approval from state regulators for its plan of its plan for how it will dispose of the manure that it produces close to the headwaters of one of Iowa's premier trout steam streams. So this appears to be a deja vu all over again, said Wallace Taylor, an attorney for the Sierra Club of Iowa. 
The problem is that Supreme Beef's operation does not fit the regulations. Taylor on Monday spoke against the cattle operation's request for approval from the Iowa Department of Natural Resources for its nutrient management plan, which proposes to disperse its cattle manure on farm fields. The facility has been controversial because of its 39 million gallon manure storage basin that is situated close to Bloody Run Creek. In addition, it is located in an area with porous geology, which means any leak has an increased potential to contaminate groundwater. The 11,600 cattle facility has been plagued for years with legal troubles, starting in 2019 when its owners sued their business partners for failing to construct an anaerobic digester that would produce a natural gas from the manure. And earlier this year, a district court judge nullified a previous plan to manage the manure from the site, which was initially approved in 2021. Judge Scott Rosenberg said that plan was approved with illogical interpretations of the statutes. It went on, It is odd to approve a manure storage system that is banned from confinement operations due to the danger of spills and leaks into the porous bedrock. The livestock facility has continued to operate and has kept its manure on site, said Kelly Book, a DNR attorney. Its owners submitted a nutrient management plan earlier this year that they later withdrew after several people and environmental groups challenged whether it had ample farmland for a field application. Manure from livestock facilities is often used as a fertilizer and is typically applied to fields after harvest or in the spring before planting. The facility's new nutrient management plan was adjusted to address the previous concerns. The Monday hearing about the plan was meant to elicit public comments about the proposal, which will factor into the DNR's decision to approve or deny the plan. It's unclear when that will happen. That earthen lagoon, I think, has to go, Taylor said, and that's been the crux of the problem all the way through. Supreme Beef's cattle operation is the largest in Clayton County, according to DNR records. No one from Supreme Beef spoke at the hearing, but two nearby farmers on Monday argued the department to approve the plan. Judith. Grassley praises Biden's Israel speech, but says some of his policies have made the United States less safe. This story by Stephen Gruber-Miller. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley praised President Joe Biden for a very strong speech standing with Israel in the wake of an attack by Hamas, while at the same time criticizing some of Biden's policies that Iowa's senior senators said have made the country less safe. Biden was in Israel Wednesday, where he met with Israeli leaders and survivors of an October 7 attack by Hamas. Biden said, Israel will be a safe, secure, Jewish, and democratic state today, tomorrow, and forever. In a call with reporters Wednesday, Grassley praised Biden's remarks and his decision to deploy aircraft carriers to the region to be ready if called on. I don't know that there's much of a way I can criticize the president at this place because he has expressed support for Israel that is traditional of the United States of America since 1948, and I hope he stays by that, Grassley said. 
At least 1,400 people in Israel have been killed, and almost 4,000 have been wounded since the October 7 by Hamas, attack by Hamas. Israel's response has killed more than 3,000 people in Gaza and wounded more than 12,500, according to Gaza's health ministry. At the same time, Grassley said Biden is kind of coming out of a hole created by policies such as the 2021 U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan and his approach to Iran, including releasing about $6 billion in frozen Iranian assets in exchange for returning five prisoners to the United States. The administration has said none of those funds have been released and they will be monitored so they are only used for humanitarian efforts. Grassley said, unfortunately, this administration's policies have left us really less safe and less prepared to deter threats against the homeland. The Biden administration said it will sanction Iran over its ballistic missile program and support for terrorism as part of an effort to discourage Iran from exacerbating the instability in the Middle East. Iran provides military assistance to Hamas, which controls Gaza, and Hezbollah, based in Lebanon. The United States has designated both groups terrorist organizations. The sanctions are meant to keep Iran from making use of United States and international financial systems and accessing equipment and capabilities that will allow them to build and sell weapons. On Wednesday, Biden announced a deal with Israel for the country to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza via uh, Egypt. Biden also pledged $100 million in new U.S. funding for humanitarian assistance for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. Grassley said of the aid, I hope the president is assured that uh, in no way it can get into the hands of Hamas. I am just going to have to count on the president to make sure that doesn't happen, but I hope that is foremost in his mind, Grassley said. The Washington Post reported Biden agreed supplies should not reach Hamas. Let me be clear, if Hamas diverts or steals the assistance, they will have to demonstrate once again. They will have demonstrated once again. They have no concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people, Biden said, according to the Post. Biden also intends to ask Congress for $100 billion in aid for Israel and Ukraine. Israel has asked for $10 billion for its Iron Dome missile defense system and military equipment as it plans an evasion of Gaza. Grassley said it is too soon to say whether he would support that request. Grassley went on to say, but I have been generally supportive over decades of helping Israel, and up until now I've helped Ukraine. But one of the things I'm hearing from Iowans is they are sick of our helping Ukraine, and at the same time not being concerned about enforcement at the border. So I would expect some immigration or border security issues to be part of anything that helps Ukraine and Israel. Grassley also said he intends to stay out of the U.S. House of Representatives' ongoing negotiations to select a new speaker, and he encouraged his fellow senators to do the same. The House has been without a speaker for more than two weeks since a small group of Republicans successfully led an effort to oust former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy earlier this month. On Wednesday, Republican U.S. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio fell short in his second bid for the job. I don't know about 99 other senators, but my perception of Chuck Grassley getting involved in the speaker's race or telling the House how to solve their problems, it would do more harm than good, he said. It, 
And I think every senator ought to think in terms of that. Don't forget it's been 43 years since I have served in the House of Representatives, and most of them don't even know who Chuck Grassley is. Thank you, Judith. All right, a brief article on page four of the main section. Urbandale student is caught with gun in backpack. This is from Noelle Alves Grance of the Des Moines Register. A loaded gun was recovered by a school resource officer on Wednesday at Urbandale High School. Two students were brought into the office after being caught vaping, according to the statement released by the Urbandale High School administration. It was then discovered that one of the students had a handgun in their backpack. So what did Urbandale High School administrators say about a gun brought to school? Here's what the statement said in its entirety. On October 18, 2023, Urbandale High School administration escorted two students to the office based on a suspicion of vaping. One of the students' behavior escalated quickly while in the administrator's office, which prompted, prompted administrators to involve the school resource officer. The school resource officer and UHS administrators searched the students and confiscated a handgun in one of the students' backpacks. The student was apprehended and left the building with law enforcement. The district will follow appropriate disciplinary actions for board policy for the student involved. The safety, security, and well-being of students and staff are of the utmost importance throughout the Urbandale Community School District. Student record privacy laws prevent the district from providing any further comment. The register reached out to the Urbandale Police Department but did not immediately hear back. So what's the possible punishment for bringing a gun to Urbandale High School? According to the school handbook, possessing a dangerous weapon can result in first suspension for up to five days or suspension for up to 10 days or suspension with a recommendation to the board to extend it past 10 days. A recommendation for expulsion is possible if the student displayed the weapon or dangerous object in a threatening way or used it to cause harm, or for putting others in danger. Expulsion for up to one year is possible, according to the handbook. Judith. And uh, from page five of uh, the front section of today's Des Moines Register, what do fundraising figures show? Rivals have little time left to catch up with Trump. This story released by the Associated Press by Brian Slodisko and uh, Dateline of Washington, D.C., Donald Trump is crushing his Republican presidential rivals in the contest to raise campaign cash, putting the other White House hopefuls in an unenviable position before the first votes are cast in January. Those who have amassed a nest egg will have the resources to last for the foreseeable future, while those without will face hard choices in the coming days, weeks, and months. Here are some takeaways from the recently released campaign finance disclosures that cover the third quarter. Trump's political operation has splurged at least $20 million this year on legal expenses arising from a sprawling set of court cases and lawsuits faced by the former president and his allies. It is an enormous outlay of cash, big enough to sink even a generously financed campaign. Yet, as the GOP presidential primary enters a crucial make-or-break phase, 
before voting begins early next year. The latest campaign finance disclosures show Trump still has more money socked away than his top rivals combined. The amount of cash a candidate has in reserve offers a window into the health of their campaign. Those with an ample sum will have the money needed to hold events, run TV ads, and communicate with voters. Those who lack it are all but certain to struggle. But the stark disparity between Trump, whose presidential campaign had $37.5 million at the end of September, and the balances held by his rivals, like former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, speaks to a broader reality in the race. It is Trump's to lose, and his rivals have both limited time and limited means to change that. The drop-off from Trump is steep. That has led some candidates to send repeated and at times desperate-sounding pleas. Did you know that every new member who donates to Team DeSantis gets their own bumper sticker as a welcome present? Chip in $5 or more today, read one text message solicitation sent last month. Tim Scott was in an enviable position when he entered the Republican presidential contest, boasting of a $21.9 million war chest amassed over the years from his prominent perch in the Senate. Things were less rosy for Haley, his home state rival. The one-time accountant raised $8.3 million last April, but relied on accounting gimmicks to inaccurately inflate her fundraising success by several million dollars in a press release. Now the tables have turned. Haley entered October with somewhat of a fundraising tailwind after doubling the money in her campaign account to $11.5 million over the past three months thanks in part to strong debate performances that led to a flood of contributions. Scott, meanwhile, has so far failed to catch on while hemorrhaging cash. That includes $14 million spent on advertising, according to data from advertising tracking firm Ad Impact. And he held $13.3 million at the end of September, down from $21 million at the start of the quarter. The big spending super PAC that supports him, a group that can raise and spend unlimited sums so long as it does not coordinate with Scott, also canceled tens of millions of dollars in TV reservations planned for the fall. Like Scott, DeSantis has also blown through a prodigious amount of money. The Florida governor entered the race with sky-high expectations and a $20 million pile of cash. But his campaign, which was built out to convey the image of a frontrunner, soon bowed to reality. DeSantis trimmed staff and expenses after burning through $8 million during an early six-week spending spree that included more than 100 paid staffers, a large security detail, and luxury travel. While he has continued to raise respectable sums, he is still spending all much as much almost as much as he takes in. That left him with $12.3 million at the end of the quarter. One variable is his super PAC, Never Back Down, which DeSantis's political operation seeded with money left over from his 2022 gubernatorial campaign. The group will not have to disclose its finances until later. And Mike Pence was always going to face an uphill climb in a Republican presidential contest dominated by Trump, the man whom he served as a loyal vice president uh, for four years. His dismal fundraising has not helped. 
Pence entered October running on fumes with $1.1 million cash on hand and debts of $621,000. That is after Pence, who is not independently wealthy, lent $150,000 of his own money to the campaign in July, records show. The rate at which he has burned through cash is not sustainable absent a large infusion of cash. Though Pence raised about $4.5 million since entering the race, he has spent $3.4 million. His expenditures offer a glimpse of a campaign flying low to the ground. Postage and printing was his biggest expenditure, costing $1.4 million. Thank you, Judith. All right, a large article on page two. Israeli bombs hit safe zones in Gaza. Aid may begin to arrive on Friday. This is from John Bacon, Tao Nguyen, and Kim Helmgard of USA Today. No place was safe for more than 2 million Palestinians on Thursday as Israel bombs slammed across Gaza, including parts of the Palestinian territory that Israel had declared as safe zones. At least 12 people were killed and dozens wounded Thursday when a residential building in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus was struck, medical personnel at Nasser Hospital said. The intensified shelling came one day after Israel agreed to allow limited shipments of humanitarian aid into southern Gaza from Egypt. Israeli air forces continued to strike southern areas despite the directive for people in Gaza to move south, said the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA. The agency said at least 14 of its own staff had been killed and nine more wounded, adding that the actual number is likely to be much higher in less than two weeks since a stunning, bloody incursion of Hamas militants killed more than 1,400 people in Israel and fueled military reprisals. The commander of the Hamas-led National Security Forces, Major General Yihad Muhaizen, was killed in an Israeli strike on his Gaza City home, along with some relatives, Hamas said. Israel Defense Forces said it is attacking Hamas in militants, the Hamas militants, wherever they hide in Gaza, and has accused the militants of taking shelter among civilian population. The death toll of Israelis and Palestinians neared 5,000, making the conflict the deadliest of five wars involving the narrow, densely populated strip of land bordering Israel, Egypt, and the Mediterranean Sea. The death toll in Gaza climbed to at least 3,785 people Thursday, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, including over 1,500 children and 1,000 women. At least 12,493 people have been injured, and another 1,300 people are believed buried under the rubble, dead or alive, the ministry said. The number of Americans killed in the conflict was risen to 31, with 13 still missing, according to the White House. Israeli authorities said Thursday they had not notified the families of 203 people believed held by Hamas militants. The number of known hostages has crept higher almost daily. About 300,000 Israelis have been internally displaced since the start of the war, the Times of Israel reports, citing Israel Democracy Institute research. Most are from southern Israel and the Gaza border towns where Hamas carried out its murderous rampage. More than a million people have fled their homes in the Gaza Strip ahead of an expected Israeli 
invasion that seeks to eliminate Hamas's leadership after its deadly incursion. Aid groups warn an Israeli ground offensive could hasten a humanitarian crisis. On the return from Israel aboard Air Force One Wednesday, President Joe Biden told reporters that he spoke with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who agreed to allow up to 20 trucks of humanitarian aid to travel through the Rafah Gate, the crossing connecting his nation to Gaza. If Hamas confiscates it or doesn't let it get through, then it's going to end, because we're not going to be sending in humanitarian aid to Hamas, Biden said. The bottom line is that LCC deserves some real credit because he was very accommodating. Biden said Ambassador David Satterfield, whom the president appointed this week as a special envoy for humanitarian issues in the Middle East, will coordinate the operation. Aid may not reach Gaza until Friday, Biden said. The roads must be patched first, and that work was to begin Thursday. Biden said the U.S. is working to get as many waiting trucks approved to enter Gaza as possible, but not all of them will be let in. Hamas spokesman Wael Abu Omar said no aid trucks or road repair equipment had entered Gaza from the Egypt border, crossing as of Thursday afternoon. Biden had initially planned to meet with el-Sisi, Jordan's King Abdullah II, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in Jordan after stopping in Israel, but that summit was called off after the hospital blast in Gaza City. Instead, Biden said he and el-Sisi had a long phone conversation. I came to get something done, and I got it done, Biden said. A U.S. cargo plane arrived in Israel carrying the initial shipment of armored vehicles designated to replace those damaged during the war, the Israel Ministry of Defense said Thursday. Armored ambulances, trucks, and mechanical engineering equipment are expected to arrive in coming days, the ministry said. During Biden's historic trip to Tel Aviv on Wednesday, he pledged the U.S. would stand by Israel and provide whatever is needed for it to defend itself in its war with Hamas. Biden also pledged $100 million in U.S. funding for humanitarian assistance for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and said he would seek congressional approval of an unprecedented support package to bolster Israel's defense. More than 100 retired U.S. generals have signed an open letter from the Washington-based Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs calling on Biden and Congress to give Israel all the support it needs militarily, diplomatically, and logistically against the Iran-backed terrorist threats that surround it on all sides. A militant video and weapons seized by Israel show that Hamas fighters also likely fired North Korean weapons during their October 7th assault on Israel, despite Pyongyang's denials that it arms the militant group. South Korean officials, two experts on North Korean arms and an Associated Press analysis of weapons captured on the battlefield by Israel, point toward Hamas using Pyongyang's F-7 rocket-propelled grenade, a shoulder-fired weapon that fighters typically use against armored vehicles. In the U.S., Palestinian Americans are seeing two fronts in the Israel-Hamas war. One is the bloodshed in the Middle East. The other is emotional backlash from bigotry and hate in the U.S. A U.S. Department of Justice hate crime investigation into the fatal stabbing of a six-year-old Palestinian-American Muslim boy in Illinois is one of several incidents of alleged hate being directed at Palestinian Americans 
allies and people who look like them since the war began. The community feels under siege. American Muslims for Palestine Executive Director Osama Abu Irashid told USA Today, but at the same time wants to show support and express grief in the war crisis. They're not out there to threaten anyone, Irashid said. They're not there to delegitimize another narrative. They're out there to assert a narrative that is being diminished. Meanwhile, hundreds of demonstrators were arrested by Capitol Police Wednesday during a rally organized by two American Jewish left-wing anti-Zionist groups, Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now. Demonstrators gathered inside the rotunda of the Cannon House office building, demanding a ceasefire and an end to the Israel-Hamas war. Capitol Police told news outlets that about 300 people were arrested, but Jewish Voice for Peace disputed that claim and said about 500 protesters were arrested. According to Capitol Police, most protesters were arrested for demonstrating inside a congressional building, and three were charged with assault on a police officer. We warned the protesters to stop demonstrating, and when they did not comply, we began arresting them, Capitol Police said on X, formerly known as Twitter. The New York Times reported that about 400 had rallied inside the building and were led by about 25 rabbis who read testimonials from Palestinians in Gaza and recited prayers. Outside the building, hundreds more marched and chanted, Cease fire now, and sang in Hebrew and English. The incident restricted public access to the Capitol on Wednesday. Among U.S. voters, about three-quarters believe supporting Israel is in the U.S.'s national interest, but 85% are at least somewhat concerned the current conflict may escalate into a wider war in the Middle East, according to a new Quinnipiac University poll. Okay, I'm going to read the announcement again that I read at the beginning of the shift. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. At 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear City View. At 8.30, it's Polk County Senior. At 9 p.m., tune in to Brain Trust with readings from Wired and other tech magazines. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal, and we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And... I would play birthday music, except there aren't any birthdays today. So we'll just say you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can keep you and get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free.